we can have targets that are meaningful, action steps that are meaningful, and also you know, just the international view of moving forward together as a world. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Hello and welcome to a new episode of EEI International Programs podcast, The Global Circuit. Today we'll be joined by Nick Akins. Nick is the Chairman, President and Chief Executive Officer of American Electric Power. Nick, welcome. Thanks, Lawrence. Great to be with you. Well, Nick, I'd like to begin by going to the book, American Electric Power, Boundless Energy, Past, Present, and Future. That book tells a very unique story of AEP uh, being at the forefront of the electric power industry in the U.S. for more than 100 years. However, many of our audience uh, may not know about AEP, so can you tell us a little bit about the company, how it started, and perhaps more importantly, its journey to today being considered one of the leading clean energy company in the world? Sure thing, Lawrence. You know, um, that's actually the third version of our history that you that you reference. There's a the first 85 years is in a in a book that's like a thousand pages, single spaced with no pictures. So, <laughs> so we tried to make it a lot easier in terms of uh, in terms of the ability to look at 115 years of history. And uh, you know, the early parts of the AP system in 1906, you could sort of see things develop with actually protégés uh, from, from Edison uh, that, that started AEP and, and came together and, and formed uh, American Gas and Electric. And, and so at that point in time, and as you probably know, the history of the U.S. electric system, you had Sam Ensel and others who were, who were developing the system over time and bringing systems together. Uh, and then, then, of course, uh, when, when that all started, it was really around electrification of America. And now you're seeing the movement to clean energy uh, going forward with that. Uh, and, and it's pretty clear that, that 115 years, a lot has happened during that time frame. A lot of firsts that were developed during the history of AEP. Uh, there were several, several areas of the country that were developed by uh, predecessors of AEP. Uh, uh, the Scranton system, the... Uh, uh, the New Jersey system, the Seattle system. I mean, you saw a lot of ingenuity and innovation. It was occurring across the entire nation to, to move toward electrification. And it's really interesting that we were moving to this, just providing electricity at that point in time. And today we're talking about reforming electricity and actually electrification growing even beyond uh, what we ever thought uh, possible in terms of, in, in terms of today's society. So um, there's a whole renaissance that's occurring today that uh, it was initial in those years that they were bringing electrification to the, econ to the economy and really drove the Industrial Revolution. So when you think about all the things that occurred during that time from AEP's history, a very storied history, we started out in New York City. Uh, the headquarters were in New York City and a lot of engineering focus and engineering first that were developed along the way. The first supercritical unit, the first uh, uh, large-scale electric transmission, uh, all these kinds of firsts that were developed over the years was because of the ingenuity of this company, which is which is basically inured uh, for 115 years now. We take that very seriously. Obviously, safety is a big issue, but innovation 
through engineering and through uh, other opportunities is specifically available to us as we go forward uh, to uh, to uh, address the, the, the country's needs in the future. So uh, that history as we move forward in time has changed. Uh, it was very much focused on the customer, very much focused on our ability to deliver the service to our customers. And as the passage of time occurred, different changes occurred with not only the resources themselves. Uh, at one point, we couldn't use natural gas, and then that came about. And then, and of course, uh, with the Fuel Use Act and then nuclear, uh, nuclear was being developed, and we actually had to had to uh, change a nuclear unit to a, a coal unit uh, in, in the past as well. So uh, we've lived through all those changes. We've emerged through all those changes. The strong company that we are today focused on clean energy, focused on targets and relative to the, to the decarbonization of our fleet, uh, and certainly have focused on the customer uh, as we go through this process and making sure that we're partners with our regula regulators on the ability to move forward in that, in that aspect. We also very much focused on the policymaking objectives in Washington uh, from a national standpoint, and we participate internationally uh, as well uh, to learn from others and learn from other countries and what they're doing uh, to help us uh, develop policy-making objectives going forward. So uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, definitely been an interesting time uh, for uh, the development of electrification in this country and, and also in the world. Well, uh, well, we'll come back, Nate, to the innovation piece and, and what you talk about the customer. But, but I wanna just talk today, for example, many in the US and in many developed countries take access to reliable and affordable electricity for granted. It's almost like you flip the switch, the lights come on. That's the assumption That's right. most people make. Yeah. Uh, so however, we know that the biggest blackout in North America was the one in 2003. I, I still remember I was on a plane myself actually, um, uh, headed back to Seattle where I live at the time. And it was a reminder to everyone that keeping the lights on is actually a very complex process. Um, but what were a few important lessons you think that AEP as a company, uh, the power industry and perhaps society at large learned from that event in 2003? Well, I think certainly uh, a lesson learned was the importance of electricity and what it means to an ongoing functioning society. I always say it's the difference between uh, civilized society and anarchy, uh, uh, and it's a, a fine line drawn there. So clearly electricity, it showed the value of it. The second thing I think it really showed is, is how interconnected we are and how we, and it was, I call it the first social, social network. Uh, that occurred uh, in society. And, and now I think it's a social safety network because it, it allows society to function, allows individuals to do what they need to do. And it really demonstrated um, that activity and the importance of planning objectives and operational objectives uh, to make sure that, that we do have this largest machine in the world operating the way it should. And so, uh, and also the, the, the regulatory processes need to be consistent to ensure that we're able to deliver uh, the product that we that, that the customers actually need. The other thing it shows is, is it's shown was the resiliency of the grid itself mm -hmm. to make sure that we're resilient among all those different areas of risk that involve not only operational risk, but also weather risk. Now, cyber risk uh, wasn't so much at that time, but but certainly it raises the, the, um, the areas of focus around risk and resiliency of the grid. 
So I, I think I really brought that on and made sure that we were focused on that in the future. So let, let's continue on the subject of, of, of risk, but specifically the unpredictable hazards and extreme weather events. I think uh, as we have this conversation, uh, Hurricane Ida is reminding us of the importance of resilience to some extent. But I want to go back to another big event, which was the 2008 Superstorm Sandy. Uh, that was, I believe, a true test for our industry. Uh, and it really, I think, brought resilience to the forefront. So how do you think that event affected how AEP, but also the industry at large, is today responding to extreme weather? Yeah, I, certainly, I think that was a bellwether event uh, for the continued evolution of our mutual response networks. You know, in the past, we had, we had been uh, really focused regionally from a response network perspective, a loose-knit group of, of, uh, of uh, uh, really response networks that would communicate with one another if they needed to. And I think it brought the industry together from that perspective to make sure that and EEI certainly was considerably involved with this because um, EEI was and the EEI utilities were working together to form not only our relationships with each other, the relationships with the regional response networks to ensure that they were homogeneous in terms of the response capabilities, particularly for large scale weather events, and then our relationship with the government uh, and the government entities. EEI certainly led the way in terms of our ability to work extensively with the government on a regular basis. So those, that, those were seminal events that allowed us to redefine what that relationship looked like, the importance of the ongoing relationship and communications that occurred through the Electric Security Coordinating Council and other types of bodies that were put together to focus on that cohesiveness in terms of, in terms of mutual response. Uh, and that clearly um, offered an opportunity for the industry to continue to evolve from that uh, regional responsibility. And so now it's commonplace for uh, when a large event occurs, uh, even before that event, CEOs in the industry are already getting together to, and, and regional response networks. And we know where the resources are. We know where the supplies are. And we're able to respond much more quickly and effectively than we ever had before. So that really, and I, and I think now you have a society that is so dependent upon electricity in so many ways, whether it's whether it's computers, data, phone systems, all those kinds of things that are dependent upon electricity being available. And now you have COVID where more people are in the home, working from home and those kinds of things. We have to be cognizant of the importance of our ability to get customers back as quickly as possible. Uh, in our industry, after three days, you know, you'll hear a lot from customers if they're out for three days. And, and uh, we have to be very effective in terms of the operational capabilities, the efficiencies, and our communications with one voice uh, to ensure that we're uh, working on that with, the, with our government partners and ourselves. So I think there's so much that came out of that uh, that was clearly positive for this country going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the point you made about coordination, I'm always imagining what will it happen if you start having severe weather in, in countries that don't have this sort of a coordinated structure. And I think there's a lesson the rest of the world can learn from the U.S. Uh, yeah. Nick, I want to go back to AEP's 100-year history and existence. And, and certainly you said it's gone through many changes in the company. And obviously a company like this, for 100 years, you've had all kinds of challenges you've had to deal with. 
Uh, I think one important moment in AEP's history I would like to reflect on is what happened at 11.11 a.m. on November 11, 2011, uh, when your predecessor, Mike Morris, I, I, I know handed you a baton and, and, and your business card that said title, president and CEO. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about how it felt when you realized the weight of the responsibility you were about to take on. <laughs> it was almost like a dog catching the car. Uh, you, you always think that, you know, if you're, and I was an executive vice president reporting to Mike as, as well, and, mm -hmm. and you always looked at the job and you think, well, you know, I can do that. I mean, I put in all the hours, I do all the work and, and, and I could do that job. Um, then you get into the job and you say, oh my gosh, what, what have I got myself into? Because uh, it is ominous in terms of, uh, you know, the buck actually does stop there uh, in terms of decision-making uh, and as well, uh, it, it is, it can be lonely because any CEO position is lonely. And that's why, that's why we, certainly communicate with each other, uh, CEOs in the industry, but also the, the, uh, the team environment that occurs that you put in place is instrumental in terms of your ability to get the job done and get it done properly. But, but certainly it was a, I'll, I'll never forget that moment when, when he handed me that card because uh, obviously it's a culmination of a career, but also is an ominous, um, uh, awesome responsibility uh, that you take very personally. And anyone who's a CEO of a company, uh, the company is like, uh, you've been given the keys and, and the steward for making sure that company continue to improve and excel. And, uh, and certainly uh, I'd like to think that during my tenure as CEO and actually coming up on 10 years uh, as CEO uh, 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 to see uh, the, the efforts of our employees continue to benefit in so many ways um, has, has been particularly gratifying. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it, it, it was an amazing experience. It's interesting you mentioned loneliness. Uh, would, you, would you agree, Nick, that I guess that loneliness for CEOs, but I think anyone in leadership, whether you're leading your family, you're leading a small team, I think loneliness is one of the things that comes with any, any form of leadership comes with a degree of loneliness. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree with that. I think, I think, you know, whenever, I mean, when it, when it comes down to it, the decision is yours. Yes. And, and you have a decision to make to, that, that actually affects so many lives and, and a company uh, in this case, but in any, any relationship you have, you have such a dramatic impact on, on, uh, on what the outcomes are. And, and that, that's a, that's a, that's a huge responsibility. So you, so you took over after Mike, uh, and AEP obviously has gone through many transformation. So over the, over the tenure you've had so far, uh, can you talk about one of one or two of the major milestones that have occurred under your leadership? Yeah, I think clearly there's been a couple of major changes for AEP. One is related to just the dynamics of the system itself and the resources that support the system. You know, when I took over, you know, we didn't have shale gas. We didn't have, um, it really didn't have a lot of the uh, capabilities we have now around battery technologies, around renewables. Uh, they were just getting started really in a big way. Um, and, and when you think about the changes that have occurred since then with the analytics that are available now, the big data analytics and the capabilities on the system, in terms of data transfers to optimize efficiencies, none of that occurred. So, so really, you know, 
we always thought at that point in time, a coal plant was going to run forever. If there was an investment that was needed in a coal plant, you made it. Uh, that was that was the business case. And today, uh, there's so many other opportunities available to you in terms of balancing out that energy portfolio of the future. Uh, we've made that transition and we've continued to think about our system differently um, as a result based upon those options that are open to us. The other thing, too, is you really can't think on a 30, 40, 50 year horizon of building a power plant, for example. You really have to think about where technology is going and what options will be available to you uh, in the future. So we've made that transition in our thinking and we continue along our path to a clean energy economy as a result and further electrification uh, of the economy as well. And then secondly, I would think about the culture. The culture of the organization certainly has changed. We talked about uh, the uh, culture around innovation, but there was a top-down driven culture. And today, uh, certainly with diversity, equity, inclusion, and all the areas that we wanna focus on a very diverse organization, diversity of thought, diversity of background, to enable teams to make great decisions going forward. And that culture is, is certainly being put in place uh, with all the, e, the ERGs we have, the employee resource groups, um, other opportunities for us to really focus on the talent because it is the people that's making the difference today. You know, in the past, I would say that we were focused on assets more than people. Today, we're focused on people because that skill set, the technologies of the future, the innovation of the future is being driven by decisions that teams and people make. So uh, that transition has occurred. And I'm proud of the cultural advances. Matter of fact, I'll tell you a story. In 2012, we did our first employee survey and we were, um, and we were at the bottom. Matter of fact, we were the 17th percentile in the fourth quartile of the responses of our survey that was this done nationwide. Today, we're in the top decile uh, and that improvement is because, is because we started listening to our employees. We started engaging our employees at every level and we'll continue to do so even during a period now. And I would say that, you know, we talked about a CEO. A CEO role today is very different than it was 10 years ago when I took over. Mm -hmm. The CEO role is much more expansive in terms of not only the, the, um, the, the, the company you work for, the issues associated with the company from a shareholder perspective, but also in terms of society in general and the social objectives around what you're trying to achieve. So I think, I think there really is a very different view today of what culture will be like uh, in the future to support our business and innovation. So you mentioned the word future, the word future, which takes me to my next question. And, and this one is basically just trying to understand AEP's strategic vision. I think you've hit a few of them. You know, you talk about the clean energy and you've talked about, you know, the issue with the, the employees, but is there anything else you would like to highlight from the standpoint of your strategic vision in terms of priorities and the pillars that you have? Yeah, I think you have a couple of major initiatives uh, and it really is around uh, the strategic innovation that will occur and the options available to us to move toward a clean energy economy. So AEP certainly has set its focus on being carbon free uh, by 2050. And uh, much of the industry has been in that same framework. We continue to work very extensively to make that transition. We, we uh, have a plan for 16, 000, over 16,000 of renewables being put in place uh, to support 
the transformation of our generation fleet. Uh, that certainly is a, is a strategic objective of ours uh, to continue to balance out our portfolio. We continue to believe in a, in a balanced energy portfolio to support not only the energy needs of our customers, but also the demand needs, particularly in the cold the dead of winter or, um, or in the summer. And it's it clearly important for us to make that transition uh, in a very uh, thoughtful way uh, for our customers to benefit the society as a, as a rule. And then of course, uh, another area of focus for us is around portfolio optimization uh, and efficiencies of our operation. You know, utilities are continually going through the challenges of ensuring we can make all these changes from a capital deployment perspective, whether it's new plants, new new systems, new uh, new activities that we're involved with, we've got to make sure our customers can afford that. And so we have to really think about the customer impacts of making this transition to a clean energy future, but at the same time, ensuring the resiliency reliability of the grid and doing so requires us to be very thoughtful about how we approach that from a customer standpoint. So that's clearly an objective of ours to, to make that transition in a very positive way. The last one I'd say is around technology. We have to be at the forefront of technology. We're the, we're the trusted energy advisor. And I hear this not only here in the US, but internationally. Um, our international partners in Germany, Italy, France, Portugal, we talk to the, these individuals on a regular basis and they experience the same thing. They're, they're the trusted energy advisor. And really we have to be at the forefront of technologies to innovate, and be able to explain to our customers uh, the, the benefits, but also be able to make that transition in a very fluid fashion. And that's a challenge all of us are facing, uh, no matter where in the world you go. Uh, there is a huge transformation going toward a clean energy economy, and we have to be there uh, to be able to focus in on what these technologies can provide. I'm glad you brought us into the world. Uh, thanks for expanding the conversation because that's where I was going to go next with my question. Um, you know, with, with all these countries and all these corporations having aggressive goals for carbon emissions reduction, uh, you, you just mentioned AEPs as well. Um, I mean, are there barriers, Nick, that you see in terms of getting these goals met? And if so, how, how do we remove some of the barriers that, that you may see uh, in front of us? Yeah, I think there are barriers. The barriers are the policy-making objectives uh, because, you know, in, in the U.S., you know, we have uh, different policy objectives depending on which state you go to. Uh, and then the federal government, obviously, is still trying to consider what their actual policy is. And it mm -hmm. tends to change from administration to administration. I hear the same thing internationally. Uh, you know, the policymaking objectives out of the equivalent of the federal government for each each area is is different depending on who's in charge. And and then secondly, uh, a lot of the things are around education to make sure that there's an understanding of how quickly we can move toward uh, these objectives. And so for us, we have to think about the resiliency and reliability of the grid, but at the same time make continued, uh, continued improvements relative to movement toward that clean energy economy. So, you know, when, when policymaking objectives say, you know, 2030 or 2035, uh, we want to be absolutely, you know, uh, net zero carbon by that time frame. it raises a lot of questions in terms of how we actually get there. And a lot of education, a lot of processes need to be put in place, a lot of regulatory reviews 
need to occur. And that that's particularly challenging because regulator, regular, regulators aren't, you know, typically don't move that fast. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about that, along with supply chain objectives and, and all the just the framework of getting projects done in time in a way that makes sure that our system continues to be secure is a challenge. So, so I'd, I'd say more timing is a challenge. And then secondly, making sure that we're lined up and, and really provide that consistency for us to make that progress. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Nick, that consistency in policy and regulation is extremely important, especially for attracting investors, not only in the US, yeah. but, but around the world. Around so the world. So that's just one question about the world. You talk about the supply chain. I want to talk about COP26. You know, we're all going to be headed to, to Glasgow, lots of expectations. Uh, what would you like to see come out of Glasgow from your perspective? You know, I think there has to be continued international collaboration, you know, beyond the national targets that were set. We really have to start thinking about the actions and hopefully, hopefully out of COP will come, will come uh, more action related objectives uh, that, that really we can sort of rally around to ensure that we're continuing to, to approve. And that international cooperation needs to occur. Uh, and also we have to learn from each other uh, as a result. So out of that, I would like to see more international cooperation, more focus on, okay, how do we achieve these objectives? Because everyone's dealing with the, with the same basic issues. Mm-hmm. And then, then, then really understanding and rationalizing the differences, depending on what part of the, country, what part of the world you're in, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can have targets that are meaningful, action steps that are meaningful, making sure that we have you know, financing in place, options available relative to financing, and also, you know, just the international view of, in, of, of moving forward together as a world. Um, and, and that really, you know, there's a lot of debate whether, you know, you're early on in your economy versus later in your economy and who pays and that kind of thing. There has to be a lot of focus on what it is we're trying to achieve and then what are the action steps that we need to make sure of? And also, we would say, take advantage of electrification in multiple parts of the, of the economy, whether it's transportation, whether it's um, certainly other activities that can, that can inure to the benefit of reducing carbon, but thinking broadly, more broadly than just the distribution line going into a home. And I hear this worldwide. Obviously, there's been focused on transportation moving to electrification as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we can address that, and with action steps, we can continue to improve uh, on that as well. Uh, I want to segue back to innovation. Something uh, I, you know, I full disclosure after the blackout 2003, I was fortunate to spend uh, two months in in Columbus, sitting in the control room before the one day the control room in Gehana was built. So that was my yep. disclosure of my my. Uh, sort of, uh, uh, I call it uh, bias to AEP because I really learned a lot being in the control room, but innovation is important for AEP uh, and it's important for the global energy system transition. You guys have been doing this for, for decades. You've won seven Edison award, uh, perhaps one of the, the, the most yep. won by any company, I guess. Uh, and if I were to ask you, Nick, you would say innovation is what's driving AEP now to make this historic shift uh, from coal power energy to clean energy. So what has been, the key to sustaining this innovation culture, because it's extremely important for a hundred years. How have you persistently kept your staff to think about innovation? You know, the first thing is for our staff not to fear 
if if you don't get the response that you expected, you know, from whether it's an investment, whether it's a project or anything else. And really, you know, I, early on in my career, when I was executive vice president of generation, you know, we were doing some of the first um, uh, scrubbers on power plants that were that were more out of uh, plastics as opposed to, you know, steel and that kind of thing. And and it wasn't working properly. And I and I and I had a couple of the engineers who were involved. They they thought they were, they were thinking about retiring because they just couldn't deal with the you know with the initial failure uh, that occurred. And I reinforced to them, no, that's how we learn. That's how we learn. And and so we invest directly in companies. Um, we also invest in um, in, in basically venture capital funds uh, that give us insight into. Uh, uh, startup capabilities. We also, um, uh, you know, are in international organizations uh, uh, like Free Electrons, for example, that we're the only U.S. utility. Uh, there's others internationally um, around the globe that are involved, eight other, eight other utilities, and we evaluate startups from around the world, uh, thousands of startups, and we, we can call it down to a smaller list, and then we engage with them uh, for pilots uh, to be run in our various areas. And we, we continue to run pilots in our various jurisdictions with new startup technologies. And some of them work, some of them don't work. Some of them, there may be circumstances that they're better run in a different utility than our utilities, just because of geographic area, um, heat conditions, whatever. And I think we learn from that as we go forward. What's even more important though, is when you do these, and I, I purposely do them in, op, in our, we have uh, seven operating companies uh, in 11 states and, and we focus on each operating company to take ownership of these, run them through, but it's really even more important from a cultural standpoint that you're participating in innovation and participating in making sure that we're at the leading edge with our customers. And that really is a value from a cultural perspective across the uh, you know, across the enterprise. So uh, we definitely um, continue to address the cultural objectives, but also make sure that there's a feeder pool of, of projects that enable us to continue to advance in so many ways. Yeah. So, you know, as I was preparing for this conversation, Nick, I, I discovered that you once said that your customers want you to partner with them to provide clean energy and new technologies, talking about innovation again, mm -hmm. while you provide reliable, affordable energy. But then you also said that your investors want you to protect their investments in AEP, deliver attractive returns and manage climate related risk. So how have you been able to consistently balance and meet what some might consider to be competing expectations? And I should say that AEP has done a pretty good job in delivering you know, you know, EPS consistently for, for several decades. So how have you been able to balance this, these two expectations? Yeah, so, you know, obviously we have the, the fundamental growth expectation of, and consistency. Obviously the hallmark for our utility is to provide consistent quality earnings and dividend growth. There's a multitude, and actually that's where the diversity of our, our operating jurisdictions, the diversity of what we invest in, the changes in what we're investing in versus we versus what we invested in 10 years ago. I mean, 65% of our uh, capital budget at that point in time was around generation scrubbers and SCRs for coal-fired power plants. And 
And um, now you look at it and it's, it's 90% of it is on wires related activities. And that inures to the benefit of what customers see in terms of the value proposition of, of uh, reliable supply. So you have that part of it going on. Then from a technological standpoint, it's about leverage, leveraging the organizations, you know, through the EEI, uh, certainly the framework there with other utilities to focus on certain areas, either through EEI or EPRI or individually with each other, um, or focused on public-private partnerships to continue to advance that. We did that with smart cities. Um, uh, Columbus, Ohio won the Smart Cities Award for, uh, for uh, the country a few years ago, and we participated heavily um, in that development. We were able to leverage into funds um, from the government and other places. So you have to really leverage the research side of things, but, but make it commensurate with what you're trying to achieve from a strategic objective. If that's the case, then it works very well. And that's the way we do it. Um, we also are very mindful of the number of projects that you're involved with. You wanna make sure that it's, it's managed properly so that you, you can withstand losses because some of these, some of these projects you know, you spend a lot of money on them, but they don't, there's no fruition and it becomes a loss on the books. But at the same time, you, you have others that are, that are very positive. Like we were an early investor in ChargePoint through um, one of the funds we were involved with. And that's been wildly successful while others may not have been successful. And, and it all averages out to where we can, again, provide that consistency of quality and earnings and dividends. So um, that's, that's really an ongoing function related to capital management, uh, but also oversight in terms of uh, the risk involved with the investments being made. Yeah, and so when we talk about customers, we talk about investors, I, I wanna briefly talk about the compact because this is something else you talk about, Nick, about the, the compact between the electric companies and their customers, specifically in the communities that they serve. Um, and, 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 and can you talk about AEP's engagement in the community? And specifically, I want you to talk about what is Credits Count, that initiative? I know it means a lot to you. But first, just talk about AEP's broader engagement in the community in terms of this compact. Yeah. How important is it? Well, we certainly believe the, the value of the company uh, is based on not only our relationships with our regulators, but the relationships with the communities that we serve. We're an active participant in the communities we serve. We actively fund uh, through our AAP Foundation and through the company uh, various aspects of what the what communities are trying to achieve. And that's an important part of how we become a partner in the communities we serve. And, and actually, it all revolves around being an honest broker. Uh, AAP certainly is sought out from, from a community perspective and from a federal government perspective because um, we'll, we'll tell the truth and we'll tell it very straight about uh, what any objective may provide. And so when you think about credits count, um, yes, came up with this, this project with uh, uh, certainly with um, uh, the person who ran our AEP foundation at the time. And she and I got together and thought about how could we make a difference in the communities that we serve, particularly in the education and around STEM uh, in urban areas in particular. And we serve a lot of rural areas as well and, and access to education, access to the ability to really focus on STEM related um, activities is, is difficult at times uh, because of just the general ecosystem of where 
individuals are coming from. And so uh, that project was built around our ability to, to interface with children early um, and provide a dual curriculum credit for um, if they participate in the STEM-related curriculum, then they would get dual credit for um, college, and then they could immediately step into um, a two-year college uh, degree uh, and, and get that uh, achieved and, and have a foundation and then make a decision later on whether you wanted to move to a four-year college. So it's engaging those students early, um, and we've done thousands of students now in that. We've had graduates from, uh, from the program as well. So it's really our way of engaging in the education system, but also reaching out to, to young, challenged uh, students to be able to excel and not only change their own lives, but change generations to come. And so uh, from, from a diversity standpoint, equity inclusion standpoint, it certainly is important for us to focus on that so that we can reach out and make sure that um, we're doing our part uh, to enable generations to change um, as a result. I grew up in a lower socioeconomic family um, and, and to have that kind of help would have been would have been just uh, just great to have through the entire process. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I look at that, and now we have a new objective around uh, social injustice, um, where we've certainly stepped up from an AP foundation standpoint to focus on those areas where we can where we can really help in the social injustice type of activities that are going on today. So um, you really have to have your ear close to the ground in terms of what the community needs and your role in it. And I think that, that uh, for any utility, uh, uh, it's important for us to have uh, a clear connection between the work that we do as providing electricity and, and, and certainly a, a basic service that's necessary for life, but also engaging in those other aspects of life that are important as well. I really like that because what you've just done is you've basically brought in the concept of the compact. Because most people think of the compact between the regulators, the investors, and the utility, but I think the community engagement is an important part of sustaining the compact over time. Uh, I'm trying to wrap things up, up in the next uh, couple of minutes, but I want to go back to the Boundless Energy book. Uh, yeah. And in that book, <laughs> you talk about uh, that you believe the foundation for the future of the electric industry is not only about providing unique customer solutions, but also provide universal access to everyone. Um, and I want to expand the concept of universal access beyond the US and move go you know, to the more than 2 billion people who lack access to reliable electricity. So you're the immediate past chairman uh, of mm -hmm. the Global Sustainable Energy Partnership. You've already mentioned your involvement in a number of international dialogues. Uh, and based on your understanding of how the US was electrified um, and in your broader experience, Nick, what are three things you would suggest to leaders in countries with limited access to this very important thing called electricity. What would you give them in terms of an advice? You know, I, I would I would say, and, and we've talked about this a lot in the Global Sustainable Energy Partnership as we move to electrification. Uh, one thing for certain is uh, we, we need to have a long-term view of moving toward electrification. And, and that really means um, an element of uh, of ensuring that, that we're, we're looking at technologies because, you know, if we're trying to provide the initial electrification um, and provide energy to a community that hasn't had it before, 
we'll skip over all the things that we've done to get to the point we're at and focus on what technologies are available today, whether it's microgrids, whether it's um, solar, whether it's other, other opportunities. So make sure you, you have to understand where an individual area is, because if it's not industrialized, for example, you could probably just do a lot more solar. If it's, if it's industrial, then maybe you need a microgrid. So the application has to support exactly what's needed uh, from, a, from a resource perspective. And you have to really look at it and look at the long-term of, of how that can be put together. The other is leverage. Um, really think about leveraging into public-private partnerships because certainly the governments of, of the various countries are very interested in providing electricity to consumers. Um, and then, then, of course, um, being able to leverage into other entities like EEI, um, uh, uh, whether it's GSEP, whether it's EPRI, whether it's others, leverage into each other because you learn a lot from that process and you're able to really focus on what's truly needed uh, from an international perspective. The other part I would talk about, and we, we talked about this earlier, is consistency. You need that consistency in terms of not only the investment potential, um, consistency in terms of the framework around financing of yeah. objectives, the consistency around governments themselves uh, to ensure that you're able to continue that approach of providing electrification, further electrification uh, for those areas that don't. So I'd, I'd leave you with those, those three areas, um, technology, leverage, and certainly uh, the element of consistency. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a government leader for a country in in the, in the, in I think it was was in Africa, it was in Latin America, and mm -hmm. and basically what I said to him was if or he said to me if I could only give him the regulatory compact of the United States, he would be able to electrify his country. So maybe exporting the notion of regulatory compact is one of the things to focus on. Well, that's um, where the element of consistency is, Lawrence. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you you've got to be able to have a home and assurity that you're going to recover the investments to be made yeah. and it has to be done uh, on a consistent fashion. So that means mm -hmm. consistency in terms of government oversight, consistency in terms of regulations and consistency in terms of our community to make sure that we're investing properly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not rocket science. You know, I, I keep telling people electrifying the world is not rocket science. If they will only listen to the likes of Nick Akins and others, you probably yeah. want to get it done. But uh, <laughs> just a few more questions to end, Nick. Um, so let's go to this notion of ESG, environment, you know, mm -hmm. environmental social governance. Which obviously we've gotten a little bit into it. Now, coming back to this issue of two billion people lacking access to electricity and ESG is constantly evolving. But if you just sort of put on your forward thinking hat here for a second, from a good global corporate strategy, do you think in the future, perhaps, um, you know, companies might get a higher ESG scores if they took actions to reduce energy poverty, which by the way, is also becoming an issue in many OECD countries because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So so what do you see happening in that space? Could this become one you of know, the- I think, I think you already see the United Nations criteria um, that, that you know, ESG tends to look at as well in terms of what you're doing to contribute to uh, ESG related activities. And, and, um, and certainly uh, energy poverty is one of those. Mm -hmm. So, I think, I think that's part of the puzzle uh, uh, and part of the opportunities that are available for any company uh, to focus on those kinds of objectives. I mean, um, uh, we certainly have, have in, our, in our reporting that we've done in the past, we've, we've taken credit for projects that were done internationally 
uh, to support the movement to clean energy. Um, Galapagos Islands was one of those that, that we were the manager of uh, uh, to make sure that it has changed over from natural gas to, uh, to solar. And so um, those kinds of things really uh, uh, are positive in terms of not only the ability for us to move forward and it, it, because it says a lot about what the company is about. It says a lot about the focus of the company and what it's trying to achieve. And, you know, we're, we're probably AEP. Um, we were probably one of the largest coal consumers uh, in, in the hemisphere uh, for a long period of time. We're making that transition. We haven't completed that transition, but everyone in the ESG community knows that AEP is moving toward uh, those goals that we have set for ourselves that we talk about very publicly and transparently. Mm -hmm. So when you think about those kinds of objectives, and we did the first um, carbon capture and storage seek restoration yeah. project at our Mountaineer station uh, in the world. So those are the kinds of steps that you take uh, to ensure that our investment community knows that the frame of mind, that the objectives that we put in place are central to the culture of the organization and not just a matter of we're only going to do what we, you know, what we can get by with. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's not the case. And, and yeah. so I think, I think in the future, you'll probably see credit given, uh, particularly if you see COP move forward and, mm -hmm. and, and the objectives from an international standpoint, if we can get to the point where, where it is a world solution as opposed to each nation trying to deal with it directly. And then, you know, whether you get credit from outside the nation or not, and those kinds of things, if you're able to bring it together, then investment potential could be put at those areas that have the biggest bang for the buck for the world community to reduce carbon emissions. And yeah. so, so I really think that, that um, and, and, and we'll have to do that because as you mentioned, if there's 2 billion people that don't have electricity, they're gonna have electricity and we need to make sure that we're able to, to, to uh, benefit not only those individuals, but ensure that the world is also uh, being much more efficient and much more clean uh, with, the, um, uh, with the energy uh, usage in the world. So uh, yes, I think ultimately you'll see credit for that. Yeah, well, listen, I just want to wrap up with, with two, two, well, three quick questions, but they're easy ones, I would think. <laughs> uh, the first one, they has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so AP, was recently named to Forbes best employer for women in 2021 or the 2021 list, right? Um, so that's great news and congratulations for that. Mm -hmm. What other concrete programs AEP is investing in to enhance uh, DEI across the company in your 11 states where you are active? Yeah, so we've had, we've had several initiatives in place to focus on an outreach to our employees, uh, specifically around certain areas that ensure that we do have an environment where everyone can work, excel, and have their opinions valued, uh, certainly from that perspective. We're sponsoring diverse uh, individuals in their organization because it's not just a matter of making sure that there's availability uh, to be able to, to do things, but we have to really take a more proactive approach uh, in terms of sponsorship. That enables us to really focus on uh, not only our our uh, methods for hiring, our hiring practices, uh, those are being reevaluated and, and redone as well. And then, of course, uh, the, the way we even state what what work requirements are, because you know, if if we 
say we require an engineering degree for something that doesn't necessarily require an engineering degree, then we're marginalizing a lot of other people that, that could effectively do the job. So that kind of evaluation is occurring around uh, not only the work qualifications, but also in terms of the ability to make sure that it's a, it's a, it's a uh, unbiased approach to uh, hiring and those practices are, are done in the proper way as well. So those kinds of things continue to work. But also, I think a big step is, is what you're doing externally that sends a message internally. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we had responses uh, uh, to the George Floyd incident um, that occurred. Uh, we had responses to uh, the social injustice activities that we saw ongoing to make sure that that our employees knew that we're trying to set up a culture in, in our company that we want to be a beacon for the not only our nation, but the world and the communities that we're involved with. And that that really takes some work doing. But but you have to walk the walk. And, and that's that's important for us to do. So it's an it's an internal view and it's an external view. And those things are being put together. We also after the George Floyd incident, for example, we went to our, our top leaders uh, that were they were diverse to just get their engagement in terms of how they how they were involved with our organization and and even they said it was challenging and mm-hmm. so if you have leaders in the organization saying it's challenging and then you do um, frontline employee reviews of that as well it gives you a lot of input on things that you need to be doing to reinforce an environment that's positive for everyone yeah. Well, you mentioned human resources to some extent, and 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 I want yep. to go back to uh, I want to go back to 11, 11, 2011, <laughs> uh, when you got that baton from 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 Mike Morris. Uh, it seems to be that AEP has a culture of leadership development, and and specifically, can you talk about what it's called the growing outstanding leadership development? I love the acronym Gold. How gold. did that whole Gold come about, and and where it does it stand today relative to what's happening in the company? It used to be called our goldfish program, you know, where we, <laughs> we, we and, and, you know, young people that come to our company, um, we want them to feel like they have an opportunity to change the world. Mm-hmm. And part of that, though, is is they don't really understand the steps taken from a company perspective or how to come up with development plans or or to focus on um, uh, reaching out to other parts of the organization to experience different things or to experience different people and perspectives. And, and that program uh, and others are really focused on ensuring that our, 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 our individuals in the company can continue to progress, continue to gain perspective, and, and continue to know and understand what their developmental uh, priorities are. And, and actually, we've, we have a very extensive um, succession planning and development uh, process that we go through with our board uh, on a regular basis, and it it goes to every level of the organization, including 360 reviews, uh, to make sure that we're seeing um, the proper uh, traits that we want to see in terms of leadership. And we've also made the and it, it, this has changed over time, where you know it's you it, it would be the the most technically adept person to take over a leadership role. Well, you know. That's not necessarily translates into good leadership, and so um, that that broadening aspect of making sure that we have the right person that exhibits the traits that we want to see uh, from a cultural perspective, and they emerge from a leadership role 
uh, and be able to, to really focus on their development going forward as well. And of course, opportunities. Opportunities are key. Uh, and we certainly wanna make sure that we're looking um, at a complete suite, including diverse employees uh, as we fill positions within the organization, particularly with all the retirements that are occurring uh, in today's organization. So uh, a lot of opportunities and a lot of, um, a lot of uh, areas where we can get better. And we certainly uh, focus on doing that. No doubt, uh, talent is going to be the competitive advantage going forward. Let's Absolutely. just wrap up with a final question here, Nick. And normally, I would ask CEOs to talk about their what they do during the leisure, how they relax, you know, what books they've read. But I want to come at you with a different question. Uh, I, I know you're you aspired to be a rock drummer once upon a time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You even played in a rock band. I saw you once play at an EI board meeting. Uh, and I think you serve on the board of directors uh, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. But um, what would you say to those who think that the drummer is the least important member of a band, first of all? And a second question, <laughs> uh, what leadership <laughs> lessons have you learned from being a drummer uh, that you have applied in running a multi-billion dollar company with 16,000 employees? So first, Least important member yeah. of the band. What do you say? <laughs> I'll say this. You know, um, it's just like the electric system being the foundation for a working, functioning society. The drums are a basic foundation of everything else that's built around it to make music. So um, I think it's a it's a, a a foundational element. Without the drums, um, it just doesn't sound the same. That I'm, I'm not. I'm. I guess I'm being a little biased on that, but but I, I really believe though that um, uh, there's so much uh, so much opportunity to be uh, 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 thinking differently about how you play an instrument. I mean, uh, and going it sort of goes to your second question. You know, in the past, and I'll I'll just as a parallel to AEP's past, mainly engineering driven, and uh, and. You know, is, is everything was engineering, everything was assets. Uh, as we look today, it, it really is centered around not just engineering, but the arts and, and marketing and those types of areas where it's not so centered on, you know, it's sort of a deterministic fundamental of, of engineering, for example. And drumming is the sort of the same way. I think it's great for someone to be well-rounded where they're not only thinking quantitatively, which we do a lot uh, in our business, but also thinking with the other side of the brain from the arts perspective of what could be. And, and I think that that's, that's really an important balance to have um, in your life. And I've applied it from a, uh, from a CEO perspective where, uh, you know, in my earnings calls every quarter, I have some uh, music uh, that, that describes the, the, uh, uh, the quarter. Matter of fact, I've had investment analysts ask me what the, what the music was going to be used before the quarter. I, I haven't told them <laughs> because <laughs> there's, there's a requirement funny. for that. But, but, um, but certainly it's, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for me to, to really bring, bring my music to, um, uh, to what uh, a fully functioning team of our corporation is doing excellent things and and uh, it's it, it's always a strong parallel for me, mm -hmm. and it's a release. It obviously yeah. is a release, and also you know it, you asked the community question earlier. Um, we have a band that's called the Power Chords, which that's sort of interesting. Um, 
and uh, we we play uh, for uh, benefits, uh, whether it's the lo local food bank, whether it's the United Way, whether it's um, Homeless Families Foundation. Uh, we play for those uh, uh, so that we can help, and uh, we bring our music to bear in that respect as well. Yeah, when I think of the drummer, you know, the Rolling Stones, I know it was a big thing for you. They just lost their the drummer who played for yeah. them for a long time. And I, I always see the drummer with my own little musical background as perhaps the most humble person in the band because they're in the back all the time. So they're not, they can't brag, they're not in front of the microphone. So they just sit there and just hit that stuff, right? That's all they do, right? Well, let me wrap up with That's my last right. question. And I don't want the microphone either. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say. Well, sing. listen, we, we, we started Nick talking about boundless energy uh, and let's end with that. And the very short question here, what gives you confidence Confidence that 100 years from now, AEP will still be tapping its boundless energy and creating a brighter future for the communities uh, the company will be serving? What gives you that confidence? You know, this company over 115 years has gone through world wars. It's gone through uh, certainly uh, fuel-related issues, uh, the oil embargo, all kinds of things. And, and it really has... Uh, uh, you know, been a process that we go through, but it's a culture that enables us to change, to be agile, to be able to focus on what needs to be done to continue to advance our service to our customers. And, and when you think about the agility, the innovation, uh, and of course, the talent, uh, the talent in this organization is phenomenal. And I've, I perfectly uh, see that continuing in the future because uh, we make adjustments along the way. We have a chief information officer now. We have um, uh, this focused on digitization automation. We have, uh, well, we have cyber experts. We have uh, data analysts. I mean, those, those kinds of things are, are changed through time. And, um, and it really is important for us to, to look ahead and make sure we're moving toward uh, where the future takes us. And, and uh, there's no doubt after 115 years, we'll be around for the next 100 years because uh, this company uh, is is American Electric Power. Nick, thank you so much for taking time out of your business schedule to really spend uh, almost an hour with us talking about AEP, boundless energy, past, present, future. Enjoy the conversation, Nick, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Lawrence. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.